0: From the University of Cambridge, this
1: is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman and we'll be coming to you each week here from my office in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about what really matters in this campaign. And we'll keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that takes. This week we have two guests, first I'll be talking to the former Conservative Party leader Michael Howard, who served in the final Thatcher cabinet, who fought and lost a general election against Tony Blair in 2005, and as Tory leader promoted the careers of two young politicians, David Cameron and George Osborne. Michael Howard is the link between the Thatcher era and the Cameron era in Conservative politics. I'll be asking him about some of the lessons from his long political career and why this election is so hard to call.
2: Anybody who tells you that they know what's going to happen at this election is not telling you the truth. (laughs)
1: He'll also be telling me what the one thing is he agrees with Gordon Brown about. Then I'll be in conversation with Stephen Shakespeare, one of Britain's leading pollsters and the chief executive of YouGov, the online polling firm. He'll be explaining what the polls are really saying in this campaign and why
0: they matter so much. He tells us how to cut through and get noticed during a campaign in order to make people think about what you're saying, there has to be something unexpected in it. It's the element of surprise. It's why I think someone like Boris Johnson is such an exciting politician, because you have no idea what he's going to say. And he'll be telling us what
1: sorts of surprises there might still be in store. Stay tuned for some fascinating insights. First, I'm joined by one of our regular panellists, Finbar Livesey, livsey who's an expert on public policy and also is someone who uses opinion polls in his own work. Michael Howard was in Cambridge to deliver a lecture about the legacy of Margaret Thatcher, so we thought we'd do some digging of our own. We went out onto the streets of Cambridge to ask voters in this election what they thought Margaret Thatcher's legacy was and whether she still matters.
2: We need another Margaret Thatcher. She had put this country back on its feet again. I think she was absolutely marvellous. I'm all for the Tories because I think when Labour's in, they always bring our country down and we get into a lot of debt. So um, definitely. But I also like UKIP with a lot of their opinions.
0: Margaret Thatcher doesn't necessarily represent the Conservative Party to me, but represents the fact that the Conservative Party can be whatever it needs to be or wants to be at the time. I believe Margaret Thatcher is neither a positive nor negative thing. She's like radical feminism in the sense that she was a necessary response at the time. As society, and in that case the economy, transformed, she became less and less needed.
2: I was all for Margaret Thatcher at first. But unfortunately, she, she did great things for the country. But then, in my opinion, she lost her way. She went too far
3: my view of Thatcher is a a thoroughly negative one. Um, I think that her proclamation that there is no such thing as society is one of the most damaging things that any UK leader has said for the last 40, 50 years and there is no way I'd consider voting Tory as a consequence of her policies.
0: Well we always admired
1: Margaret Thatcher and we object to people calling her Thatcher because we feel she should be called Margaret
0: Thatcher.
2: You obviously do associate it with the Conservative Party because it is their history, but I think things have moved on a lot. You know, with New Labour, you know, I think they changed the bits and the Conservatives have changed. I don't think I take it into account when I'm voting.
1: We also commissioned some opinion polling of our own on this question. Thanks to YouGov, we asked a sample of 1,700 voters how they would vote if Margaret Thatcher was still alive and well and leading the Conservative Party. Perhaps not surprisingly, no current Tory voters said they would switch to Labour as a result. A little more surprisingly, 6% of Labour voters said they would switch to the Conservatives. But the really interesting result concerns UKIP. If Mrs Thatcher was still in charge, the UKIP vote share would more than halve from its current levels of around 14% to only 6% half of all UKIP voters would switch their vote to the Tories. So our poll asking how people would vote if Margaret Thatcher was in charge of the Conservative Party actually gives us a result that's almost identical to the real result of the 2010 general election, with the Tories on 35% and Labour on 28%. So, Finbar, what do you think that this survey really tells us?
3: It looks like this is an election that not even Margaret Thatcher can win. When you look underneath the hood of the numbers, the vote shares point towards a hung parliament again, even with the strongest personality that we've seen in British politics in the last 50 years, heading up the Conservative Party. It's predictable even to the point of Margaret Thatcher can't drag the Conservatives over the line. So that also suggests that if people think UKIP are the reason why we're heading
1: for a hung parliament, that's not the case either, because this is killing the UKIP vote. But it's still not getting the Conservatives over the line.
3: No, when the numbers, when you break them out, the UKIP voters responding to this in terms of who they would vote for with Margaret Thatcher in the mix as the leader of the Conservatives, essentially run 50-50. Half of them stay with UKIP, half of them go back to the Conservatives. But even that isn't enough. And so we're in this interesting and strange territory that you're seeing the vote fracture into the smaller parties. But even as it starts to recoalesce, we still have a hung parliament.
1: And why do you think half of UKIP voters would desert to the Tories if Margaret Thatcher was in charge? One possible explanation is because they are Thatcherites. The other possible explanation is that UKIP is basically the party of nostalgia, and Margaret Thatcher represents some imagined past where things were nicer than they are
3: today. Do you think it's a nostalgic vote, or do you think it's an actual policy decision. I actually think it's about the representation of strength, the image of Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, the power that she had, compared to nice bloke Nigel Farage, who's down the pub with a pint and going to give you a vote to get out of Europe. The contrast is so huge you do see people saying, actually, I'd like that strength back again, please.
1: Because one of the other things that we asked in this poll was whether people thought either David Cameron or Nigel Farage were Thatcherites. So on the David Cameron question, people divided absolutely down the middle. 34% said David Cameron is a Thatcherite. And 34% said David Cameron is not a Thatcherite. And almost that number said they had no idea, which seems a reasonable answer. On Nigel Farage, perhaps slightly more surprisingly, more people thought that he wasn't a Thatcherite than that he was a Thatcherite. So 27% say he's he is, and 39% say he isn't, though he's the politician probably who most invokes her legacy among all of the current party leaders. So is that what you think is going on, that Nigel Farage... Doesn't seem to people like a Thatcherite just because he doesn't seem like he has the personality for it. It's not about the things
3: that he believes in. You can invoke the imagery, you can invoke the name, but do you actually carry that meaning with you? And Farage doesn't. He doesn't carry the war, Prime Minister, the Falklands War. He doesn't carry the strength in the speech. He doesn't carry the power that she had to hold an audience. And so I think you're seeing all of that come out. It could be nostalgia. But it could also reflect the ongoing discussion about who's going into politics. And are we getting the big, strong, focused personalities that we had around the time of Thatcher, whether you liked her or not, or are we getting something different? And it feels like this poll is hinting that we are getting something different. We're getting the ex-PR person, we're getting the professional politicians, and we're getting the personality politician. We're not getting something stronger. Could I ask you a broader question about opinion polling? As an academic, what are the kinds of polls that you find
1: most useful when you're studying politics? What's what's the stuff that you're really looking for
3: in polling work? Very specific questions. Um, obviously, you have to be incredibly careful, because the wording of questions can unconsciously put a bias in place. One of the most recent polls that we did was looking at how people actually want to interact with their MP. Surprisingly, there's been relatively little work done on this so far. And it's interesting because people's reactions surprise you. All of the time when we put polls out, we actually don't know what the answer is going to be. So what's the surprise there when you ask people about how they want to interact with their MPs? The surprise there is that um, we have a huge push towards online democracy, digital democracy, much of which is to be applauded for opening up parliament and trying to engage people more directly in the discussions around policy. However, when people are asked, would they use Twitter? Would they use Facebook? Or would they respond to a consultation? The responses for actually using the social media tools is very weak. All of the questions have to be specified into an issue that's actually important to the person. Because people don't engage in politics 100%, 24-7. They engage when they feel that they need to engage on their issues that are important to them. And that's why some of this polling is really useful, because it points in that direction. So they don't want to interact with Individual politicians, they want to interact with anyone who can help them engage with the things that they think matter. They're more engaged with the issues that are going to directly affect them rather than the personalities that are in the seat. Could I just ask you now about something that has happened recently that connects up
1: David Cameron, Margaret Thatcher, and the question of whether he is or isn't her heir? Because he's done something this week that is trying to signal that he's different from Margaret Thatcher which is he announced a couple of days ago, maybe off the cuff, maybe pre prepared, that he was not going to go on and on and on, which was her famous line, he would stand for another full term as leader of the Conservative Party, he would not go for a third term. This has been interpreted by a lot of people as a monumental gaffe. He's created a whole new set of anxieties within the Conservative Party, he sent all sorts of signals to the voters, some people
3: have said it's arrogant, other people have said it's weak, who knows do you think it was a mistake? I do think it was a mistake. I do think it was partly prepared, but I also think that he responded to an opportunity that he was presented with by the interview. He didn't proffer this up. He didn't say, I have a statement, I'm not going for a third term. He was asked a question and he answered. (laughs) Naive fool that (laughs) he (laughs) is. Did it feel overprepared? Yes, because the shredded wheat imagery seemed a bit too quick. It seemed a bit too neat. But was he being honest? He probably was being honest. But at that moment in time, given that you're having an interview in yet another kitchen, that may not have been the best thing to do. So what struck me about it was it was a perfectly reasonable thing, I think, for him to say. And actually,
1: I'm sure most people would respond positively to the thought that a prime minister would see 10 years as roughly the limit. The two things that don't make sense in that answer are first, the British system does not allow prime ministers to serve two full terms. You can't do it. It's not the American presidential system. You have to step down early enough to allow your successor a chance to run for re-election. What you can't have is the American thing of a sitting president and an ongoing leadership contest to find out who will replace him or her. So the British system does not allow for two full terms. And I think the, the problem that he's created here is that if you are going to stand down before you fight your third election... You have to stand down considerably in advance. So the speculation will start not just halfway through the next parliament, but early in the next parliament. When is he going to allow his successor time to take over? And the other thing that seemed to me to be very, very strange was to name three possible successors, not only because this is five years off, but no prime minister should ever be talking about the three people that he thinks are the talents well placed to succeed him. That seemed to me to be crazy.
3: There was a number of things that came together. He seemed to give away control by saying, here is my end date. It may be reasonable. And I think, as you say, 10 years may be exactly the limit that you should put on it. But it gave away power in one sense. Naming the people was a control maneuver. He wanted to keep control over who was going to be coming up in the line of succession. And the striking thing is he wanted Osborne's name in there, because most people would think that Theresa May versus Boris Johnson looks like the contest. Yes. He was adding a third name. He was adding a third name and trying to make it a contest amongst equals from the get-go. But it, it still has all of, as you said, the strange ramifications. It feels like he was acting in the presidential mode, Because I have two terms. It felt like he was presuming he's going to be prime minister again come May the 8th, which isn't a done deal in any way, shape, or form. Whilst it might have sounded good in that I am acting as the prime minister, I am showing my strength, I am in control, I am the person who is leading the country, it unfortunately came across really badly. So he did succeed in distinguishing himself from Margaret Thatcher because it ended up sounding weak. In the end, it did actually sound weak. It said, here is my back, please have it, and you're going to take over the party at some stage. But as you said, here's a mess of confusion on the timing of how everything is going to play out. Thanks to Finbar. Now to a man
1: who was actually there when Margaret Thatcher was in her pomp. I spoke to Lord Howard, Michael Howard, about what, if anything, Thatcherism still means today. But I started by asking him how this election was different from all the others he fought over his long political career.
2: Very different. The the obvious thing is that you have many more parties who are playing a very significant part in this election. Obviously, you've still got the, the two big parties, but their share of the vote is likely to be less than it's been for some time. And you have the SNP as a major force in Scottish politics to a much greater extent than they've been before. You have UKIP, which is likely to be put it at its lowest, it is likely to get more votes this time, many more votes this time, I imagine, than it has previously. And you've got the Greens, who are also likely to play quite a significant role. So it is completely different, I think, from any election that we've previously seen, and therefore, completely unpredictable.
1: So if we talk about UKIP first, and maybe we'll come on to the SNP in a second, and, and what that might mean for the future of the Union. But do you think that UKIP, who who may poll, as you say, significantly higher than in the past, and maybe higher than the Liberal Democrats as well, but are unlikely to win many seats? I imagine you'd agree. I do agree. So do you think that UKIP are a distinctly different force or the, the kind of minor party irritant or something more than that, that the major parties have had to deal with? And as we get closer to the election, the influence on the outcome is likely to diminish?
2: Who knows? We don't know. I mean, it is perfectly possible, and I know some people think that. There was, before the recent election in New Zealand, an insurgent party, obviously not UKIP, but um, shared many of the anti-establishment characteristics of UKIP, which was expected to do extremely well and just collapsed um, 48 hours before the poll. Now, I know there are are people who believe that's going to happen to UKIP. I I don't think their vote will collapse, but I think there is a pretty good probability that it will shrink quite a lot from where it is in the opinion polls at the moment. But I could be completely wrong. Anybody who tells you that they know what's going to happen at this election is not telling you the truth.
1: (laughs) You're here in Cambridge to give a a lecture on Thatcherism today. Um, Do you have any sense of how Margaret Thatcher might have fought an election like this one? Given, as you say, she didn't face an election like this one. The elections that she fought were there was the SDP, but it was major parties taking each other on. How would she, for instance, have tried to see off UKIP, do you think?
2: I think it's an almost impossible question to answer. I should tell you that the major conclusion, the central conclusion that I've reached about Thatcherism is that it was a specific response to a specific set of problems at a specific time and that there are very few generalizations that you can draw from it which are applicable to today. Um, So given that central conclusion, it's far far from easy to speculate as to how Margaret Thatcher might have fought this general election.
1: And what about the politicians who are fighting this general election? Are there things you think that they should be saying that they aren't saying in dealing with these, these other parties
2: on, on either side? Well, I'm trying not to be partisan. And this, um, this podcast is, is a totally non-partisan exactly. podcast. Exactly. Um, but I'm, if you'll allow me one partisan remark, it is that I think there are an awful lot of things that Ed Miliband should be talking about and he isn't, um, but not many things that David Cameron isn't talking about that he shouldn't. Do
1: you want to give me one he example shouldn't. of something that Ed Miliband should be talking about and that he isn't?
2: Well, he he should he should be talking much more about the uh, about the deficit and about how the Labour Party would deal with the deficit. And they're far from clear about that. They haven't given really any indication of how they would tackle the deficit.
1: So that then leads on to the other party that is occupying the minds of the main parties at the moment, the SNP. To put it in very broad terms, we have no idea what the outcome of this election will be. But it's clear, I think, now that the Scottish independence referendum did not settle the question. In a sense, it opened up a whole further series of questions about the future of the union. Do you have fears for the union itself over the next, say, five to 10 years, given the various possible scenarios that we might see playing themselves out, including the SNP being the party that holds the balance of power in Westminster?
2: Short answer to your question is yes. But I wouldn't want to exaggerate those those fears. I I think it would be foolish to say that the union is absolutely safe for the next five or ten years, because of the unpredictability of politics and because nobody quite knows how things would play out with a large block of SNP members at Westminster. But, you know, if I had to bet on it, I would bet that the Union will survive. I think that it was quite a decisive outcome in the referendum. And if you look elsewhere, I've always been struck by the fact that the the last referendum in Quebec, which I think was 20 years ago, was won by the people who wanted to stay in Canada by the narrowest of majorities. I think it was 50.5% to 49.5%. So you couldn't get much closer than that. But there hasn't been another referendum and support for separatism in Quebec has declined. Now, obviously, there could be many differences and there are many differences between the two and it would be unwise to take that as an absolute paradigm for what's likely to happen in Scotland. But I obviously hope the union will survive and I think it will, but it's impossible to be complacent about that.
1: And do you think that the prospect of a European referendum, which almost certainly will happen if the Conservative Party form the next government, is going to make all of those questions even more complicated. I mean, there is a clearly in the Scottish referendum, Scotland's place in Europe was one of the cases that the independence campaign pushed very hard. A British referendum on European exit does put particular pressure on
2: Scotland and the idea of Scottish identity if Britain takes Scotland out. Well, that's putting it in very stark form, Uh, But there is an issue there, I quite agree. And we'll have to see how that plays out. I I mean, obviously, your question assumes that the result of the referendum would be a British withdrawal from the European Union. If the referendum doesn't lead to that outcome, then the pressures to which you refer will will go away.
1: Yeah, and I'm not assuming that, but I'm assuming that in the run-up to any such referendum, those questions are going to become more and more acute.
2: Yes, but in the run-up to the election, they're going to be, by definition temporary. If there's a vote to stay in, then um, that particular issue goes. If there's a vote to come out, then obviously it'll be a live issue.
1: So enough of the speculation, which I totally understand why you and any rational person does not want to engage in. Could I ask you a question that that draws on your experience as Home Secretary, which is the question about the radicalisation of certain British citizens and how the British government should respond to that and what sort of legislation or other measures you might think is appropriate for a Home Secretary or a government to take in the face of serious anxieties at the moment about the ways in which certain people in Britain seem to be radicalised and then that leading to threats of serious harm?
2: Well, I broadly speaking support the government's approach. I think it's a mistake to suppose that you're going to solve all these problems by legislation, though legislation has a part to play. I think we we just have to engage at all levels with the differing communities in this country to try and influence people to do all they can to ensure that people don't get misled and carried away by these terrible ideas. And how serious do you think the threat is? Is No doubt, it's a serious threat. It's it's not it's not
1: currently being overplayed. I don't think so. No. Hold
4: up.
1: And then can we broaden it out even further, because I want to talk about something that I know that you're interested in. And it may seem far removed from current British politics, but it's about political leadership and and what makes the ideal politician. Uh, Your Desert Island book was a book that many of our listeners may not know about, though some of them will. A biography of the American president, Lyndon Johnson, an epic biography that runs currently over four volumes. And those of us who admire it are waiting eagerly for the fifth the story of Lyndon Johnson's life and how he rose to power and how he used power. Can you just tell us a little bit about why you admire the book so much, or indeed the man, Lyndon Johnson?
2: Well, about the only thing I agree with Gordon Brown about is the fact that this is the greatest political biography ever written. And the detail which Caro goes into is absolutely mind-boggling. And it is just a brilliant book. I've often described it as political biography written as Western thriller. I I found it absolutely impossible to put down. Now, partly that's a result of Caro's great skill and great attention to effort, to detail, and and, and great effort. Um, the, The introduction, the dedication, actually, to the fourth volume is to his publisher, which reads 40 years, four books, thank you. <laughs> and it, it took him longer to write the account of the life than the life that's, of being led. That's absolutely right. So it's partly his great skill as a biographer, but it's also partly his subject, because Johnson was, in the true meaning of the words of this cliché, a truly larger-than-life figure. He was, in many ways, deeply flawed, But he achieved great things.
1: And for listeners who don't know the book, they may know a current TV series, House of Cards, which we're told has been partly inspired by Caro's biography, though its central character is not just flawed, he's something worse than flawed. It's sometimes hard to imagine how one could be a Johnsonian politician today. He did live in an age where the levels of scrutiny were significantly less he was able to devote himself, as you say, the incredible work that went into getting legislation passed, because he wasn't subject to so many of the pressures that politicians are now. During the Obama administration, sometimes frustrated, it's either supporters or opponents of Obama have wished that he would read the Carrow so that he could understand just what it means to be president and get legislation through. And that's always struck me as a little unfair to ask Obama to be another Johnson, just because to be president now is a, is a different kind of job. Or maybe I'm... Um, Maybe yes, I, mean I, don't, I
2: don't think I do entirely agree with you. I mean, obviously, there are different pressures today, and in some ways those pressures make the job more demanding. But Johnson faced huge challenges. I think that um, probably any president today could learn from reading the Cairo book. I'm not suggesting that we want another Johnson, but I do think that we would it would be good for the world to have a president who uh, was able to deliver many of the things that Johnson delivered. Now, of course, some people would say, yes, and, and Vietnam. And, and that's uh, the fifth volume yeah, of the book that, that we're waiting that, for. That, that's, a, that's a fair comment. He was, you know, as I say, he was a deeply flawed figure. But in terms of getting legislation through and getting things done, and you know, we wouldn't have the Civil Rights Act that we have today in the United States without Lyndon Johnson. I'm absolutely convinced of that.
1: And one thing I'm sure we can agree on is what's so great about those books is the sense that they convey just how much politics matters in an age where people sometimes want to say that it doesn't and that we're living in a world where other things, technology or whatever it is, matter more. But politics is still at the heart of of social change.
2: Of course. I mean, you know, that's, uh, that's always going to be the case. And
1: that's why, among other things, elections matter too. They do. Michael Howard anyone who'd like to watch the lecture that he gave in Cambridge can follow the links on our website. Just Google Cambridge election podcast. And you'll see that after his lecture, there's an interesting question and answer session with some students who ask some of the tougher questions you might wish that I'd asked. Now my conversation with Stefan Shakespeare, one of the pioneers of online polling. We kicked off by discussing Michael Howard's claim that anyone who said they knew what was going to
0: happen in this election wasn't telling the truth. Would a pollster agree with that? it is incredibly hard to call this election. And the reason for that is we've seen this long-term decline of the major parties. The the smaller parties coming in are bringing the, the distances between the major parties closer together, and therefore small changes in the vote have a much larger effect on the overall, you know, who gets what seats. So that makes it unpredictable, but there are these
1: sort of slightly unusual features of this, which is it's a very unpredictable election, but the polls look pretty steady, certainly compared to some previous elections. There hasn't been an awful lot of movement. There's maybe been a bit of movement towards the Tories in recent weeks. But the two main parties seem to be, as you say, fighting for this very small share. Mm. Is there anything you think that could really
0: move the polls between now and the election? The thing that we're all obviously, waiting for is the collapse of the UKIP vote. Uh, (laughs) That is what we've been predicting for some months, years even. And it, it, it seems the obvious thing to happen. We know from our polling that UKIPers much prefer a Conservative government to a Labour government. And you would think that they would realize that their continued intention to vote UKIP is bound to hurt the Conservative performance. But actually, a poll we did shows that most UKIPers think that more UKIP MPs would actually help the Conservative cause. Now, of course, they're not going to get a lot of UKIP MPs, but trying to get them is going to really reduce the Conservative vote. So if they were to wise up, you could say, then that should make a big difference. But I don't know if that'll happen. And traditionally, the thing that makes people
1: wise up is the ballot box that they may change their mind on the day, even when they're confronted not with the choice, who do you want to express your preference for? But who do you want to be prime minister? And the choice is still going to be between two people. Is it your sense that this election is going to fall into that familiar pattern or is it also different? Well, we we
0: really don't know. Uh, And And that's maybe the question. and, and And that's the big question. And there is a perfectly rational response that a UKIP might have and say the whole reason that we're sick of politics is because you keep forcing us down this one choice that we don't want to make. And then we found someone in Nigel Farage uh, that we do like. So what if it is wasted? That isn't a waste to me. I mean, Nigel Farage is the only party leader the supporters really like. Conservatives quite like Cameron. The uh, uh, supporters of uh, Labour, they're not that keen on Miliband. Uh, the supporters of the Lib Dems are very disenchanted with Clegg. But UKIPers really like Nigel Farage. And SNP voters quite like Nicola Sturgeon as well, don't they? Yes, they do. And she's, But she's, obviously that's a, yeah, in a d- yeah, different, yeah. almost
1: a different election. It is, yeah. One of the things that you wrote in the column that you write in The Times is that you thought that there was an appetite in this election for surprises, that there is room for the politicians who feel that they're very constrained maybe to galvanise their support by producing policies or statements that shake things up a little bit do you think Ed Miliband in particular has more room for manoeuvre there than he might appreciate? We don't know what's in the manifesto yet, we're going to find out soon
0: Yes, I, I mean, I certainly wasn't predicting surprises because everything they're doing is suggesting that they're, that they're, 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 very they're not going to do that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I was really saying was that if you want attention, if you want to grab attention, you must surprise. Nobody gets excited about hearing what they expected to hear. We know, I mean, not to get too neurosciency about this, but we don't even notice, we don't even register or perceive things that accord with what we expect. So when a politician starts telling you the things that, that, that you expect them to say, you're not even listening, you're not engaging, and it's certainly not going to change your vote in any way. In order to get attention, in order to make people think about what you're saying, there has to be something unexpected in it. It's the element of surprise. It's why I think someone like Boris Johnson is such an exciting politician, because you have no idea what he's going to say. He sometimes <laughs> has no idea. You can see him making it up at the moment. If you watch him, he's looking around the room almost for, for, for inspiration for something, and he comes up with something quite crazy sometimes. I mean, it, it's humorous, right? It's unexpected. It's, it's, not, it's not crazy enough. In the neuroscience. In the, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that if Miliband wants to get attention, wants to uh, use the moment to, uh, to change someone's mind, he has to say something that is a surprise. And he actually has the ability to do that. He's obviously much less constrained than a, than a prime minister. And what
1: are some of the things that you think the polling suggests he could say that would resonate with people, particularly
0: maybe with wavering Labour supporters? There's a sort of contradictory appetite, I think. Uh, people do seem to want A more left-wing appeal. We've been through a banking crisis. There's a big hangover from that. People think that the establishment is against them. Uh, Leftist ideas, when put in polls, get really good support. And they're really sick of austerity. Uh, They don't think the economy is working for them. So there is an appetite for something more radical. At the same time, we know that people feel centrist. I mean, they they don't think of themselves as radical. And if somebody comes along and sounds too much like a firebrand, then that's not going to help them either. That's that's the difficulty for him. His appeal would be to say not Blairite things, but to say more left wing things, and that I think could at least get him attention. We don't have to talk.
1: About, I mean, in the column, mm. my memory of it, you said that there was a way that he could, as it were, well, bridge that divide. That he could, for instance, yeah, yeah. move to the left combined with something that seems to
0: distance himself from the trade union. So, one of the things he could do is to announce that he would like to renationalise the railways. That's a very popular move. But at the same time, say, because this is national infrastructure because we all depend on it for our work you cannot strike as a member of the union uh, that would be surprising because he would be pushing himself away from the unions in a in a way that nobody would expect at the same time as doing something that is a leftist sort of statist popular thing so the
1: double surprise in a way to double really surprise cut exactly Something that Michael Howard said in our interview with him when I asked him about what might happen if Britain leaves Europe is that we shouldn't get too carried away about the prospect of Britain leaving Europe. A, we don't know if the referendum will happen, but if it does, we shouldn't assume that the British people will vote to leave. I know you've already started polling on this. It's a long way out. Do you have any sense yet of how we should be thinking about public opinion on this question?
0: Well, there will only be, of course, a referendum if the Conservatives win. Only the Conservatives have promised it and Labour has said they would not do that. If the Conservatives win and there's a referendum, then it will be, I think, near certain that Cameron will lead the uh, referendum campaign in favour of staying in. Uh, I think he's indicated that. Of course, he's said, only if I can get certain concessions. When we've tested this... Pretty much any concession of any size, a fig leaf of, you know, one inch size, as it were, will actually make the people vote in favour of staying in. That is to say, what people really want is to stay in but get some acceptance from the EU that it's gone wrong and that we need to listen to Britain and that we will make some change. I think it's the arrogance or the perceived arrogance of the EU that is really makes people angry about it. We don't see much appetite for actually leaving.
1: And do you think there are lessons from the Scottish referendum campaign for a future campaign, not least what seems to happen in almost all referendums on big constitutional questions, which is that the status quo is where people move back to as we get closer and closer To the vote, which would suggest in a way that this is a campaign where the supporters of Britain's relationship with the EU do have an advantage here, that they are the status quo and change would come with all sorts of risks. And it was the risks of change in Scotland that, in the end, seemed to settle
0: the question. That's right. I mean, normally in politics, when we see movements uh, in a campaign, we think that's that's not real. We think that's probably bad polling. Uh, In the case of the Scottish referendum, we measure that there was actual people talking to to the same people before and after and during uh, different parts of the campaign, and they were changing their minds. And why? It's because change is exciting until the ramifications get really close. And a a referendum campaign of the Scottish kind uh, is, of course, not a rather marginal choice between a Miliband future or Cameron future. It is a -a once-in-a-lifetime decision which you cannot reverse. Uh, Once you break up the Union, you can't put it back together again in a short period of time, and you're making a really big decision f- for lots of people, uh, for your family, uh, into the future. A European r- referendum would be exactly like that. Britain's position in Europe is now so institutionalised, it's so much part of our way of life, it's something we grumble about but we use in our lives all the time. People making that decision to come out of that would be an enormous step and a frightening step and it would mean a lot of turbulence. And my very strong sense is that it wouldn't take much to make the negative sentiment about the EU be a grudging acceptance. Now, the Scottish referendum, as you said, people did change their minds. And YouGov were
1: the pollsters who tracked the change most dramatically, because famously, you had the poll a bit more than a week before the vote, Mm. which was the one poll that showed the Yes campaign marginally ahead. And it did clearly produce panic, I think, among the main party leaders in Westminster. And some people then think that they made concessions that they went on to regret. And it's not the only time that YouGov has had a real influence on British politics and indeed on wider politics. You also conducted the poll before the vote in parliament on potential military action in Syria that showed that the British public was strongly against. And that poll was widely cited in the parliamentary debate. It may have had some impact on that vote in parliament, which resulted in defeat for the government's motion to enable military action in Syria. As a pollster, do you feel pleased, uncomfortable when you see your polls really impacting on the way that politicians behave? Or is it simply you're the messenger and it's up to them how they deal with the message?
0: Well, the only thing that matters to me is that we're accurate and that we've put the question in a reasonable way, in a fair way, uh, and that it's reported fairly. If those things happen, then I think I've done my job. I think the purpose of polling is to bring more information to decisions. If you don't have that information, then you're likely to make worse decisions. So I'm always glad to bring Good, accurate, fair information to any decision making process. That's, I think, what we're all about. So, in all those cases, there's a third case that I'm going to mention as well. I think it's important that what we do, and we do think that we are being accurate. We know, we, in, in the case of the Scottish campaign, well, uh, the Mail on Sunday actually wrote a piece at the weekend saying this is the company that cost Britain 64 billion pounds. Uh, on and these the are the, the
1: concessions that
0: we were <laughs> supposed to have made. Yes. And the assumption is, of course, that if you hadn't made the con- concessions, that things would have been exactly the same. To which I replied to them, you know, why have a campaigning mail on Sunday? Why do people advertise? Why do people have money off sales or whatever it is? People do change their minds as a consequence of offers made. And that was exactly what happened here that once the Westminster establishment realised it was truly at risk and they had to do something. They did the thing that Scotland wanted them to do, essentially to engage in what was happening and to reassure them on on some points and to make concessions. And that's what they did, and that's the result they had. And so, it's a very good example, I think, of information being used to improve the decision making. You mentioned Syria. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I think it did have a difference. It did make some difference to the vote there. What was clear was that the British attitude to that potential intervention was emphatic. It wasn't a small difference. It was two to one. And it's very hard, I think, for Parliament to vote for something that has the sort of heavy repercussions that a military intervention has when a really strong majority is against it. Whether or not people actually change their minds, one of the things that some politicians, some of the MPs we know, said to us is that it emboldened me to go against the party line. I already wanted to go, but it emboldened me to do that. So I don't think anybody would read a poll and say, I used to think intervene, now I don't think that anymore. I think it would change the way that they express their opinion, whether they would actually vote against their their party, for example.
1: And it was striking in Parliament that a large number of those MPs did cite the poll, Yes, which was a new feature of a
0: parliamentary debate in a way. It's not... That 's common right. for MPs to make that claim in parliament that 's right, and a third example where i, I don 't think it was that we had changed anything, but there was an unusual use of a poll. We had done a poll this is on the eve of the Iraq war, and Parliament was voting on whether to you know, whether, whether they should take part and we had done a, a poll for the Daily Telegraph that was showing that a plurality, not a majority, but a plurality of the British people and it was a very small number, but were in favour of this going ahead. People forget that actually at that moment, the argument for taking part was just about winning. Uh, I got a call from Charles Moore, the editor then of uh, The Daily Telegraph, saying that Alistair Campbell had been on the phone, could they release this poll early within the chamber? And uh, apparently that's what happened. They felt they needed to show their MPs that actually the British people, perhaps marginally, but nevertheless, were on side.
1: One way in which polling might then influence this election, not so much in the run-up to the election, and we're familiar with polls in the run-up to an election, but if this election does produce a result which is unusual and maybe unprecedented, which is some kind of gridlock, not just a hung parliament, but makes it very difficult for a government to be formed, you, along with other pollsters, will presumably ask people what they think about the alternatives post the election, the various Permutations? Are they happy with a conservative minority government? Are they happy with the SNP having a particular kind of role? Am I right that that you would expect a poll on that? And presumably that also may be a case where those polls really do matter.
0: We will absolutely be ready on, on the day. I mean, I'm sure that we'll be polling on Friday, poll every day anyway, and we'll be set up to do that, I think, quite in depth. And even now, I mean, uh, I ran a poll last week to say... Not which party would you vote for, but what outcome do you actually want at the end of this? And we had a 10-point lead for a Cameron-led Conservative government of some kind versus a uh, Labour, a Miliband-led Labour government of some kind. Uh, And that's a pretty big difference, a 10-point difference. At a time when the polls, that was, you know, the numbers in that poll about voting intention actually gave Labour uh, not a majority, but would make them the biggest party. That gave me a sense that there was a discrepancy between what people wanted and what their vote was going to achieve. I've just done a poll for The Times in which I asked people if Cameron gets the most seats and could just about hang on, do you want him to stay prime minister? Do you want him then to stay on for prime minister for five years? And overwhelmingly, people said that he should stay Prime Minister for the full five years. People actually want this le- election to be over. Uh, that once they voted and the result is in, the deals are struck. Whatever it is, ought to hold for five years. They don't really want a second election. They don't want uh, endless argy bargy about you know what concessions are made and 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 who gets to be number ten. Uh, I'm posing that question now so that when the results come in, we already have in mind what people intended when they went to the when they actually made their X in the ballot box. Because that also suggests that
1: one of the possible outcomes of this election, which is a minority government, so not a coalition locked in for the five years, but something more ad hoc. Again, polling will play a really important role, not just because as you've described, it may be that people will get quite impatient with that. But also a minority government by definition is kind of putting it together as it goes along. Mm. It's doing it on a piece of legislation by piece of legislation basis it's trying to make sure it has the alliances in place to get through the week or the month and polling will impact on that too because people presumably will then be polled by you about how the government is doing this week or this month and the government is only living by the week or by the month so polling could become more important in that scenario
0: I think it could be and I think it will be in any case in all aspects of life public opinion is becoming more powerful and that is really why I think there's a greater onus on us to show that we are accurate in the first place. But being accurate with a badly worded question or with a question that's asked of people who don't actually know any background is sort of meaningless. So I think it's also incumbent on us to to ask ourselves, what is it that we're asking? Why are we asking those questions? How in-depth do we want to go? When I started YouGov, um, I was waiting in the wings of for some television studio about to talk, and Tony Ben came up to me and thrust in my hands an old leaflet he had written about the need for a national institution of uh, public opinion because he thought, and this was back in the 70s, I guess, uh, he thought that public opinion was so important that it needed to be, to be nationalized, <laughs> as he might, but, but that it needed to be institutionalized by scientists so that it could play the proper role in public affairs that it should have in, in our policy making and so forth. And I think he had a really important point, that if we have poor quality polling perhaps inaccurate, but even more importantly, not actually explaining issues properly, not actually asking the right questions at the right time, then it undermines what is in fact a vitally important role. One thing Ed Miliband
1: could do to really surprise everyone would be to nationalise the, <laughs> the polling firms. <laughs> i right, do no, not no. advocating that. <laughs> One last question about polling. Obviously, the famous disaster for opinion pollsters in this country was 1992, looked like a very, very close election, quite similar to this one, though, of course, it was between the two main parties, the other parties didn't really get a look in. And then the Tories pulled ahead dramatically on the day. So not only were the polls wrong, even the exit polls were wrong. Mm -hmm. And polling was meant to have left that behind. But we've just seen a repeat of that in Israel this week, something similar, another disaster there I mean it's presumably you weren't polling in Israel but another disaster for the pollsters which shows if nothing else that these things can still throw up significant surprises even with the ways in which polling as a science has advanced in the last 20 years do you have any fears or expectations that this could happen again this time or are you much much more confident that 1992 is impossible
0: no it's always terrifying and it's terrifying because things change and whatever sampling frame, whatever techniques you use that were perfected from the last experience, they may not be quite right for this experience. We had a very difficult time over the referendum. We've now all forgotten the the previous one about AV. We were polling on something that nobody understood. And to say, do you support or oppose AV even with a half sentence explanation got us nowhere and for
1: our listeners who've forgotten what AV (laughs) is it's the alternative voting system it was a vote to change first past the post to something which was closer to proportional that's right that's right and And even then I struggled to explain it and I do this for a living
0: and 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 it was very complicated and to put it in a polling question was very difficult and if you start lecturing people on the background that changes them as well so there are things that are just hard to predict because of the circumstances. So the science has definitely improved. Uh, We use much, much more data in modelling our results than was ever possible in the past, and that makes it more reliable. But there are lots of other dynamics, so it's going to be really hard to ever be sure that you're going to get it right.
1: So this is an exciting election for you too, and an unpredictable election. It's It's an anxious night for pollsters. It is, yeah. As well as politicians. Yeah, yeah. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks to our guest Michael Howard, Stephen Shakespeare, my regular panellist Finbar-Liversey, and our production team of Hannah Critchlow and Francis Durnley. Join us again next week when I'll be talking to the historian Robert Toombs, who's just written an epic new history of England. He'll be explaining what makes English politics different, not only different from the rest of Europe, but also increasingly different from the rest of the United Kingdom. How will English identity be a crucial factor in this election? Join us next week to hear more. My name is David Runciman and this has been The Election Podcast.